Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Well, welcome to the third B2B social media podcast. This is Eric Schwartzman in Los Angeles. And Paul Gillen in Boston. We are excited to bring you this third episode of our podcast. The episode of For Immediate Relief Live is For Immediate Release Live uh, with Paul and me talking about B2B social media is up, and you can get that at forimmediatelease.biz. There'll also be a link to it in the show notes. I saw um, an item today that President Obama would be actually in Los Angeles today. He's here now. We're recording this on uh, Thursday, February 17th. And uh, this evening, uh, he's headed up to Silicon Valley to meet with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, um, uh, Eric Schmidt, and a number of other uh, Silicon Valley uh, uh, business leaders to talk about how to, you know, kickstart the economy. And I was kind of was going to ask you, uh, Paul, I mean, if if, you know, if the if the president said to you, how do we kickstart the economy? What would you tell him? Short term, you know, government spending has done pretty well so far. And uh, it's certainly run up the deficit. But I think um, uh, cutting, you know, cutting off the uh, the fire hose of government spending is is probably not going to have a good effect on the economy right now. So uh, I, I would say that the uh, you know, we worry about paying off that debt uh we put off worrying about paying off that debt as long as we can uh because so far the the stimulus seems to be uh turning things around but it's uh, you know in the long term it's investing in education it's it's tax breaks for the growth I- industries like uh like energy efficiency and alternative power uh obviously technology industries you know that's what will keep us competitive in the long term but uh in the short term i just think uh the government has got to keep pumping money into the economy there's an interesting cover story uh, towards the end of last year for Time Magazine by Fareed Zakaria uh, titled Restoring the American Dream. And he interviewed four CEOs of major multinationals, one of whom was Lou Gerstner, the former CEO of IBM. And uh, he talked about the proliferation of the PC onto everybody's desk in the organization, saying that, you know, initially PCs were in payroll and they were in uh, – accounting and in inventory management. Uh, but when the PC wound up in marketing and in sales and in customer service, that's when we saw huge productivity gains in the organization. And I was thinking actually about a presentation um, that Jeremiah Oyang of the Altimeter Group gave at the web later last year uh, about a report you may have seen called Social CRM, which talks about you know the proliferation of social media throughout the organization. Uh, you know, right now, um, sort of the go-to uh, application for social media is marketing and communications and, and, and PR. But what happens when every department in the organization gets a hold of social media? Do we effectively see an uptick in productivity uh, on the scale of, you know, the PC being rolled out throughout the organization? Uh, if we do, then the organization learns how to do more with less, becomes more productive and more effective – but we do have to reskill the American worker to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. 
Well, there is actually there's one assumption in that statement that I'm not sure is is generally agreed upon. That is that computers have made us more productive, and there has been uh, an ongoing debate going back you know many many years uh, in this area of how to measure whether computers have really made our businesses more productive. And of course, it's kind of a a false argument because you can't do business without computers these days. But the uh, the productivity statistics have not really uh, there, there's no clear correlation between the introduction of technology and a huge uptick in productivity. At least going back uh, probably to uh, within the last ten years, which is when I was last monitoring that debate. So bringing a lot of PCs into the organization certainly uh, it certainly introduced a lot of technology, and it maybe it took some administrative staff out of the uh, you know out of the equation, but. Uh, the counter argument of that is it also made a lot of executives into tinkerers with their computers. Uh, so we all became print managers and we all began typing our own memos and, and doing stuff that, that we used to have administrative staff do for us. And that's not necessarily making, uh, making people more productive. Uh, I think the big opportunity in social media, certainly behind the firewall, is in flattening organizations and, and removing barriers to people communicating with each other. And so we look at the proliferation of these enterprise social networks, which I think is a real interesting trend. We're seeing companies begin to see some some noticeable business results from just getting, you know, taking away the need for people to constantly search around and find information that uh, that's already available somewhere else in the organization. You know, one of the things um, he mentions, Zakaria, in this article uh, he's uh, talking about an interview he saw with Jack Welch, I think, on CNBC. And Welch is talking about a company that he's invested in. Um, I was looking for the exact numbers. I don't have them in front of me. Um, but um, uh, what Welch said uh, in this interview on CNBC is that he had essentially invested in a company. Uh, the company was doing uh, you know, so many hundreds of millions in revenue annually with, uh, I, I believe the number was like 24,000 employees, and that the company was on track to maintain that revenue with half those employees by 2013. So if it's not technology, uh, you know, I guess you could say it's globalization, but I think it, you know, certainly a, a combination of technology and globalization, at least according to Zakarian in his story, is what's responsible for the productivity uptick. Uh, well, uh, and again, it's a it, it's a squishy topic, so it's hard to say where the technology uh, uh, inside the company and, and outside the company comes together. One of the big productivity benefits, though, we are seeing is through globalization and the ability to outsource tasks that we would have done uh, in this country now. We can outsource them to other parts of the globe and get them done that much more cheaply. And certainly that makes us more productive. We're spending less to get the same outputs. Um, but the technology there is really, uh, the, the, the value there is of the Internet of, uh, of uh, obliterating limitations of time and space that previously forced us to spend money here that we now don't have to. Uh, indeed, indeed. Um, so I, I would like to, if we can, just m move into our first story. I did want to sort of get that on the table there. Um, but uh, my gosh, um, we've been hearing a lot about uh, IBM's uh, victory with Watson in uh, the recent Jeopardy matches with these world champions. Um, you actually watched it, right? I mean, you saw, I, I missed it, but you saw him on TV. 
Well, I have a bit of a of an inside perspective on this because I've been working on a project with IBM for a number of months that's unrelated to the Watson Challenge, but sort of everybody at IBM is tied into this right now, is very aware of it. And so I, I've been doing a lot of reading and talking to people over the last couple of months about anticipating this, including a, an interview I did with the author of a book about this project uh, called Final Jeopardy. It was written by Stephen Baker, the former Business Week editor. It's a very good book uh, about how this machine was created. Now, the, the reason I want to talk about this today is that this is, uh, I think, just a masterpiece of B2B marketing. And I say that not because I happen to have a financial relationship, uh, a modest financial relationship with IBM right now, but because I think this is just uh, they did so many things right here, uh, both in using mainstream media and in social media. Um, just so for people who aren't aware, this project was uh, to this is a five-year project to create a computer that could successfully challenge the uh, the all-time champions at Jeopardy, and uh, the the project led up to a three-day or three-night sequence of programs, February 14th through 16th, in which this computer not only beat. Ken Jennings and Brad Rutter, but uh, obliterated them, uh, winning, I think, $77,000 for the IBM Watson computer, and the next closest, uh, I think, Brad Rutter came in with 28000 And uh, what IBM did, in, uh, IBM had a month, really, to, to prepare for this program because the, uh, the shows were actually taped about a month earlier. Uh, under strict secrecy, nobody knew. It was impossible to find out what had happened until the shows actually aired. Uh, IBM did a masterful job, I think, of, of building anticipation and setting the stage. And in terms of using social media, I was interested by the people they chose to be spokesmen. Uh, they chose a the project manager is a guy named David Ferrucci, who is a brilliant guy, Ph.D. in computer science, but uh, also a, a very articulate guy, young man, uh, good-looking, uh, just a, a very... Um, uh, disarmingly casual guy who who speaks English. He doesn't talk down to people, and IBM chose to make him the front man and really put the the suits, uh, the traditional IBM spokesman in the back end. And they they produced well over thirty videos that ran on YouTube, and that were uh, were also repurposed all kinds of different IBM websites as well as on third party websites about all the the technical nuances of how they created this computer. And the stars of those videos were the people who created the computer. It wasn't, again, the IBM marketing people. And even when the when the episodes aired uh, the first three nights of, of the week of February 14th, the, uh, the people who were speaking in the segments that they did on ABC about uh, the background on Watson, the people who did much of the talking were the IBM engineers. It was the people hands-on who had actually created this technology. And in fact, the, the low point of the three nights was the third night when they actually did bring on an IBM executive in his $1,000 suit to talk about the uh, what a wonderful achievement this is. And I thought the guy had the least credibility of anybody I saw during the three nights of the program. It was much more interesting, I think, watching the people who had actually built this technology. IBM recognized that. And they leveraged, in addition to their YouTube presence and their Twitter presence and a very active presence on Facebook, they, uh, they leveraged uh, internal IBM bloggers, of which there are a couple of hundred IBM bloggers who are fairly active, and some of them have large followings. And those people uh, were also encouraged to, to get a front row seat and to write about this. And sort of by bringing all these different resources together, I, I think they helped generate 
uh, the buzz that resulted in just an explosion of mainstream media coverage. And I was following this closely because I was uh, co- uh, collecting some of it for a, a website. And there were literally in the three days that the uh, program ran, there were over 1,500 articles that Google News collected on mainstream media, including every every one of the largest mainstream media you can think of about this accomplishment and unanimously positive or or almost unanimously positive toward IBM. So it was a home run uh, and it was a home run that really was managed uh, with a a collaborative and a a very loose federated approach. There wasn't a giant master plan. Uh, Everybody was sort of encouraged to to get the message and to go out and spread the message the way they saw fit and it all came together beautifully. And uh, just to uh, read a little uh, snippet here from a story in E-Week about uh, the Watson Challenge and the next steps that IBM's taking, um, they've done a deal with an organization called Nuance. And um, here's a graph from the story. For example, a doctor considering a patient's diagnosis could use Watson's analytics technology in conjunction with Nuance's voice and clinical language understanding solutions to rapidly consider all the related text, reference materials, prior cases, and latest knowledge in journals and medical literature to gain evidence from many more potential sources than previously possible. This could help medical professionals confidently determine the most likely diagnosis and treatment op- options. Uh, I mean, this is this is totally life-changing. I mean, well, I mean, the scale and impact of natural language processing at this scale is is staggering. I mean, when I I can remember, you know, 20 years back reading about the Turing test, this idea that we won't have artificial intelligence until I can have a conversation with a computer and a person and not be able to tell the difference. Uh, It seems like this is a huge advancement in that direction. It is, and it's going to be, uh, I mean, we could talk for an hour about the technology and the applications of the technology to better understanding global warming, to uh, to economic analysis, They're just almost limitless. I don't want to get uh, go down that road on this podcast because we're basically about marketing. Um, I thought that the uh, from a marketing perspective, the way that IBM used a, a consumer venue to promote a business agenda was remarkable. You know, there's a there's a uh, term that's come in, it's popular in the technology industry now called consumerization. And this is the tendency of new enterprise business technologies to start off in the consumer markets. It's, uh, sm- smartphones being an example. The Internet actually took hold first uh, in, in homes before it spread into business. Going back to PCs, uh, there are uh, any number of uh, evolutions of technology revolutions that have started really in the hands of consumers and then spread into business. And I thought IBM's choice of Jeopardy, which is a a program that everybody knows, everybody has seen, everybody knows how hard it is to win at Jeopardy. Uh, so choosing a consumer uh, uh, icon like that as a way to showcase the power of a technology that has fundamentally IBM wants to sell other businesses to other businesses I thought was brilliant. And by the way, it so happens that this year is IBM's 100th anniversary. So it gets the lift of both of these events together. Uh, You're going to have a a year-long 100th anniversary celebration. IBM saying, well, we are this stable, uh, uh, mature, uh, very reliable, respected company. It's been around for 100 years. And we're also tackling the most vexing technology problems 
that the world faces now and we're having success and isn't that great it's just a I, it, it's it's magnificent. I mean, this is the uh, the you know the old spice man of um, of B two B marketing, in my view. I think it's probably easy for a lot of listeners, particularly at smaller companies, to sort of dismiss it and say, "Well, they're a big company; they can do that." But you know, I think about um, a stunt that Pete Blackshaw, who recently actually went over to um, head up digital marketing at Nestle, but who previously. Uh, started a country called a company called Buzzmetrics that was acquired by Nielsen, and he was the VP of digital for Nielsen. And you know when he was sort of building that brand, the Buzzmetrics brand, uh, they set up a site called Blog Pulse. And one of the things they would do is they would do these graphs on which movies that got released on a Thursday got the most discussion in the blogosphere. So they sort of tied, they sort of used their technology to comment on pop culture. And sort of, you know, become more relevant to a broader audience and at the same time, you know, build their profile in the B2B market. I think it's really a smart way to go. It's it's an interesting point you bring up because I think what, what we saw, uh, really this happened with the Internet. In, in my, going back to 1995 and, and even earlier when the Internet was beginning to take hold, I think what drove awareness of the Internet was not what was happening in business because IT organizations for the most part were trying to keep the Internet out. They just saw, they saw all kinds of bad stuff coming in uh, this way. It was executives went home and they saw their kids on AOL and they began to get – uh, an appreciation for the power of this worldwide network. And I think what really drove the Internet into broad business use was executives coming in and saying to their CIOs, we've got to get this. We've got to have access to these global resources. And, and the same thing has happened with smartphones, uh, Eric. You know, when you look at the, the iPhone, with the apps on the iPhone started out not as business apps. That's not what people were were downloading originally from from iTunes. It was consumer stuff. And then businesses began to tap into this and realize, well, we've got geographically aware devices that can deliver uh, advertising and that can be used to, to, to track lo for logistics and to track the workforce. And all of these different business apps now have emerged uh, on the backs of what was fundamentally a consumer revolution. When we come back, a discussion of how the revolutionary fever sweeping North Africa affects B2B marketers and increasing social media literacy inside the organization. Stay with us. This January 2011, Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. Packed with business-to-business -business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled. B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. That's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step -step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers to ultimately drive more revenue. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders. Or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. talking about here is making it possible for us to interact practically with vast amounts of data. 
Um, I remember Chris Messina, uh, the open web advocate for Google, presenting at South by Southwest last year a session on activity streams. And uh, essentially what he said was, you know, the activity stream is the killer app for social networking inside the organization because it's a collaborative model that makes more sense than point-to-point -point communications like email. But the byproduct of all that sharing is an absolute, you know, mound of data that gives you better insight into how people operate and hopefully um, some insight into how to help them operate more efficiently. And, you know, one of the things uh, um, – I was thinking when I look at, you know, what's happening now in North Africa with, uh, you know, the um, the ouster of um, uh, Ben Ali in Tunisia and uh, Mubarak's resignation and now uh, what's happening in other parts of the world. Um, it's happening so quickly that really no organization is able to participate and, and, and influence any sort of outcome. But I wonder – why aren't more B2B marketers using their technology to map and show us from a data visualization standpoint what all, you know what's going on? Could they be marketing their technology by using it to give us a better, more robust blueprint of what's happening? Uh, well, certainly there's a lot of work going on in uh, within B2B technology companies in this area. Uh, there's been a surge of activity in business analytics recently uh, tackling what's called the big data problem. And that being that we have basically, over the last 20 years, we've gotten very good at collecting data, but we're still very bad at doing anything with it. So the problem that, uh, the, that the technology companies are tackling now is really how do you make sense of all this? And by the way, Watson is one manifestation of that because what Watson does really well is mine through vast quantities of data and detect patterns and correlations that human beings simply can't do uh, because of the limitations of our brains. Uh, and that is just one way in which I think we're going to see, uh, we're going to be able to derive insights about about our markets and our customers. You know, uh, I recently talked to Thornton May, who's written a, a great book called The New No uh, about business analytics. And he, simp he says simply that in the future, uh, and he's talking about from now forward, you will not be able to succeed at a company uh, with with seat of the pants decision making. You will have to know uh, why you will have to have hard analytic data that helps you make your decisions. You'll have to be able to defend your decisions with data because there is the data out there now and we are beginning to develop ways to to understand it. And that's really exciting. You know, um there are so many uh tried and true uh outreach or or marketing efforts that organizations make that aren't necessarily uh, measured very well and don't necessarily deliver an ROI. I mean, look at television advertising, right? I mean, it's I mean, in terms of delivering an ROI, it's a train wreck. Look at, um, uh, you know, a fancy coffee table in a conference room. What's the ROI of that? What's the ROI of a telephone? You know, these are the arguments that are raised by, uh, you know, our, our colleagues when they're asked to defend the ROI of social media. Um, so, I mean, do you, I mean, when you look at an organization like Google, which is essentially, you know, decisions are made based on hard data. And if there's no good science behind some sort of a solution, it doesn't see the light of day. Do you see engine um, organizations essentially reorganizing to uh, you know, start from data? 
I think I don't think there's any choice. I think it's the only way we can go in the future because the cost of making uh, of making mistakes with a big campaign are just too uh, too high. Uh, you have to be able to predict with, with some degree of accuracy. You know how, uh, or at least you have to have metrics that you can point to and say these will be our metrics for success. And you know when when you and I do our our presentations and, and our boot camps, we talk about this. That uh, that you have to start from a definable goal and a measurable goal, and you have to assess your progress against that goal. And if you're not doing that, you're nuts today. I mean, quite simply, there are too many ways to measure, particularly with online campaigns. There are too many ways to measure success. If you go out there with a with your goal being, well, we're going to improve uh, brand. Uh, Engagement. We're going to make our brand. Uh, we're going to make people feel better about our brand. How are you going to measure that? There are ways to measure that. Believe there are. Uh, so you have to have those metrics in place. And I would say, you know, any marketer now, B two B or B two C, who is a uh, a phobic about math has got some studying up to do because statistics are where it's at, man. Statistics are how we are going to measure our progress in the future. No, it's it's a very important point. I think you know one of the challenges that organizations need to figure out a way to overcome is often you know those statistics that math doesn't mean anything to the CEO or to the people who are sort of dictating the vision of the organization. I mean, I'll bet you if you went to most CEOs of Morse organizations and told them what the bounce rate of your site was, they wouldn't even know what it was. And if you SEO'd their site for certain keywords that maybe weren't politically correct or weren't part of their approved messaging, uh, they'd have a heart attack. So it seems to me the first step before you can even communicate the value with data is just improving social media literacy at the top of the organization. Um, you know, I, I thought about this a lot. I was I just got back from Rome. For, I was there for Social Media Week, and I did a training uh, for a group of individuals that included, you know, the top of the organization, the middle of the organization, and the bottom of the organization. And everybody has different priorities, right? Everybody's marching to the the tune of the beat of a different drum. And trying to bring them up to speed in a three-hour period is challenging at best, I should say. And I think until organizations are ready to dedicate uh, a more holistic approach to social media training uh, so that there can be some sort of a module that will work for the CEO so he understands uh, you know, what vision means with respect to social media engagement – um, a session perhaps for middle management uh, that would help them grapple with uh, translating that vision into strategy. And then I think what we, what we already have today, you know, these sessions that are designed to help people who actually execute on those strategies um, understand how to use these tools and accelerate their knowledge. And I'd even go one step further and say you should be starting with the metrics. You know, uh, we hear for too many marketers, I think, still uh, try to justify their, uh, their their social media or even their their mainstream media programs uh, through these squishy terms like like brand uh, uh, brand value or or trust or reputation uh, or lift. Uh, well, these th those can all be measured. Uh, you know, I, my my dear, I, I worship at the church of Katie Payne. Uh, she is, uh, you know, the, she's very adamant about that. This can all be measured. And the, the, one of the great virtues of online marketing 
is that everything is measurable. So why would you not want to go into the skeptics in your organization and set out definable success metrics that you can use to prove whether or not these tools are going to work for you? Uh, speak their language. Uh, this is the problem that I have with the, you know, what's the ROI of giving roses to your wife on Valentine's Day? Uh, that's a legitimate argument, but the fact is you don't have to make that argument. You can make the argument based upon hard, deliverable goals that the, the skeptics in your organization are going to have to, are, are going to understand. You know, I discovered a new podcast this week called Beyond Web Analytics. And um, I, I was listening to episode 40 with uh, Evan LaPointe, and he is an analytics guy. He's a measurement guy. And that's exactly what he was talking about. He was saying, you know, right now we're kind of like from an the analytics guys, we're serving drinks to the table. You know, they're doing their exercise. They're going through their campaign, and then we're serving up stats of how it went. But often, you know, they're not really thinking about what, the, what they want to measure before they start. So they wind up with some really misguided strategy because, you know, the, the people at the top or either at the middle don't have the social media literacy level to be able to translate vision into strategy effectively. And one of the examples he gave was the American Airlines website, which apparently before they got their redesign was better at selling uh, hotel nights than it was at selling airline tickets. You know, because so many different people with so many different priorities at the table uh, wound up uh, making a sausage that, well, didn't really work for customers. Well, I wasn't familiar with that, but that sounds just kind of crazy. <laughs> I, uh, I think that, uh, you know, it, you've got to start with the goal and, the, the, and using these old metrics like page views and unique visits, uh, you know, that's not, that's not uh, relevant. We have much more sophisticated analytics now. We should be looking at, at session times, at visitor paths, at, at uh, views per, uh, per visit, at uh, landing page access, referring URLs. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of more, of more useful metrics now that will tell us where, uh, that will tell us how people reach a goal and help us drive people toward that goal. And that's where we should be starting. And, and ultimately, you know, if we start to actually measure changes in behavior, that would be the ultimate outcome. You know, not just, you know, the number of friends or the number of uniques or the session time or number of likes, that type of thing. But I think we should move on to our, our next item. Um, Facebook pages got a major uh, facelift this week. And um, Jeffrey Cohen of Social Media B2B, the editor over there, has a great post about it. We'll have a link in the show notes. Um, I actually went through it and uh, updated our um, our Facebook page for the book, Social Marketing to the Business Customer. Uh, one of the things, well, there's a few things that they've solved, but I think most importantly, one of the questions I uh, used to get quite a bit from um, clients was, look, I have a personal uh, profile on Facebook. I have a Facebook company page. How do I post on behalf of the page and how do I control whether I'm posting personally? Um, I have no way to do that. And they've added that. So if you update your page, you can now choose, choose whether or not you want to like a page on behalf of your Facebook page or whether or not you want to click a like button or a recommend button on behalf of your personal profile. Um, it also gives you notifications. Uh, there was uh, recently 
an app that came out that emailed you when there was somebody who left a comment to your Facebook page. Now that's part of Facebook. Um, you could just go in and, and that those little red flags will actually show up in the upper left-hand corner of the screen. The other thing you can do is you can display your likes on the page. Um, you basically you just go into the featured submenu and then you click uh, add featured likes and you can choose which likes you want to display and which likes uh, you don't want to display right there on the page. Um, really cool. I noticed since I made the change, we got a, uh, a few new followers uh, on the page there. Um, so I would really encourage everyone to check it out. You do have to upgrade to the newer page, but I think it's it's going to happen to everybody whether they like it or not um, in, a, in a few weeks or so. I think in March they say it's going to take effect. One more thing, uh, Paul, before you comment on this. Um, Social media B2B turned two years old uh, this week. So happy birthday, uh, Jeffrey Cohen and Kip Bodner, and uh, thank you for the great work you do there. Yeah, that's great. I don't, I don't know Jeffrey. I do know Kip, and they uh, and he's a great guy, and that's um, uh, they've really carved out a nice niche for themselves. Uh, regarding Facebook, uh, we're running long here, so I don't want to go into detail on it, but I think we're seeing Facebook uh, – continue to innovate on uh, uh, you know doing what they do best which is uh, which is uh, a continual gradual but rapid uh, really innovation constant innovation and I think there's a battle between Facebook and LinkedIn coming and this is part of the uh, the move toward making these pages more business friendly and I personally can't wait to see LinkedIn and uh, and Facebook duke it out because it seems to me that the uh, the members of those networks will be the winners. Well, I don't know. I mean, I could see the value in both networks really having their place because if you wanted to segment your communications and keep the personal fun stuff, family stuff on Facebook, you didn't want the business stuff uh, clouding that, it, you know, one way to do that would just be maintain a Facebook profile and maintain a, a, a LinkedIn profile. Uh, yes, that's true. But of course, you you can do both of those now. It's nice that the market has kind of uh, slim down to the point now where there are two social networks that matter at this point, and you can uh, uh, pretty efficiently manage your presence in both places. Certainly in this marketplace, but I'll tell you, with my work I'm doing in Europe, and uh, you know, talking very actually, different. Yeah, very different. Ning yeah. is still hot there, man. And and I, I just spoke to an organization based in Copenhagen that's getting ready to start a new group. They're not going to LinkedIn. They're not going to Facebook. They're going to Ning. That's where the adoption is. Well, I've got two clients right now who are trying to get off of Ning, so I, it's a it's a somewhat different uh, different uh, story. Depending, I guess, depending on your needs, I, I think Ning has some great features, um, but it's it's not the most flexible network in the world, and, and lock in can be a problem with it. But um, hey, you know, whatever whatever works for you. Um, so before we wrap it up, I just want to mention a couple of dates coming up. Uh, we've got the second uh, B2B social media boot camp, and that is going to be in Boston on March 4th. Um, so if you're interested in uh, getting a link to that, we'll have um, that in the show notes. Also, uh, we're giving away a book to the first comment that appears on the show blog and on the recordpodcast.com uh, for, uh, for the B2B social media podcast episode two. So um, anything else before we sign out? Uh, no, that's it from this end. Thanks again for your, uh, for your ear today. And, and to all of our listeners, um, thanks for tuning in. And uh, don't forget, uh, FIR Live at uh, 4
as always, you can uh, send us a comment to comments at b2bsocialmediapodcast.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at b2bsocialmediabook.com. Uh, and um, you can find me at ericschwartzman.com and Paul. I'm at uh, gillin.com, G-I-L-L-I-N. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord.com, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.